0: All right, welcome to the My One Life podcast. I am Keith Wolf. I'm the Managing Director of Murray Resources. We're a national recruiting firm here in Houston, Texas. And I'm also the CEO of Resume Spice. We're a national career coaching and resume writing services. The two companies have come together to produce the My One Life podcast. And we focus on topics and ideas that are central to helping professionals develop a career and a life they love. Now, if you've missed any past episodes, you can find them by visiting myonelifepodcast.com. Now, for today's episode, I have the thrill of speaking with Dan Heath. He's a bestselling author of five books, including four New York Times bestsellers, Decisive Switch, Made to Stick, and The Power of Moments. He sold over 3 million copies of his books. And What makes this even more special is that Dan and I actually attended the same undergrad and the same business school. But our paths really never crossed at undergrad. And even at business school, you're so busy that you don't really get a chance to dive into each other's backgrounds really as much as you'd like. So I'm getting the chance to do that here. And it's a great excuse to catch up with him and then also to share some of his wisdom that I know will be interesting to our audience. But before we do that, Dan, I don't know how much you think about it, but I remember very vividly your being the speaker at our graduation day at business school. And for those who aren't aware, I don't know how it is at other schools, but at our school, that was a big deal to be chosen as the graduation speaker. It was, it was a competitive process. There were judges, you got to go through multiple stages, and then eventually everybody picks the speaker. It's 18 years ago, and I still remember being in absolute tears to this day. It is one of the funniest speeches I've ever heard. I was crying. Hey, thanks. Laughing.
1: Thanks, Absolutely.
0: man. Absolutely. So I know there's nothing worse than being introduced as funny, uh, and I'm not expecting you to be funny. <laughs> yeah, please
1: don't do that to me.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I am. I'm very much looking forward to it and talking about some of the concepts um, in your book. So, welcome, Dan. It's it's great to have you on.
1: Thank you so much. I, this is the first time I've ever got a shout out from my class day speech, so so I'm already <laughs> excited about this. Awesome, awesome. Well, before we get into specific concepts from your books, uh, I,
0: our audience, like I said, is is professionals and it's folks who are either making a career change or have made a career change or maybe will be in the future. Also, folks who are in a professional roles or are managing. And I always find it instructive because we get asked the question a lot about how people land on the job that they do. I'm not going to go all um, all the way into your background, but I would love for you to just talk a little bit about how you landed as a writer. I mean, going to business school is not a very common path. So how did you end up where you are today and kind of go through some of those inflection points if you could?
1: Uh, I w- I would not offer myself up to anyone in the spirit of career guidance. I mean, my my career has been uh, full of lots of meandering and ill-advised alleys uh, walked down. And um, I mean, honestly, the the writer thing was uh, more of an accident than an intention. Um, I'd always loved to write. I mean, since since elementary school, I would go out of my way to write. I was on every student newspaper and entered every essay contest and. Had an internship at in college at the Houston Post, which no longer exists. Uh, it was absorbed by the Chronicle, and on and, I, and I, even at business school, I was still writing for the for the business school paper that no one read. Um, but I never thought of it as being a career, you know. And and then a couple of years out of business school, my brother Chip, who uh, was a professor at Stanford, was like he left, not like he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> he's still um, with us. Yeah, and um, he he had been doing some research on what makes ideas stick. You know, why do some ideas resonate with people? Why are they remembered? Uh, and in particular, on the world of urban legends, which are a class of naturally sticky ideas. And he had published this paper, you know, kind of analyzing the sticky traits of urban legends somewhere. I don't even recall what journal or periodical it was in, but an editor at Random House named Ben Lennon saw the piece and got in touch and said, Hey, really intrigued by this sticky idea stuff. Like, do you think there's enough material to make a book? Cause I think there'd be interest in this. And so chip got excited about that. And then uh, eventually called me up and asked if I wanted to collaborate on it because I'm more of the writer between the two of us. He's more of the researcher. And so we just started this, um, this project together just for the hell of it. You know, we, neither one of us thought it would lead anywhere. We both had full time jobs doing other things, but we just loved the idea of of having a real book deal with a real publishing house and like having a book that we could put on our shelf and be proud of and, you know, brag to all our family members about and and we thought that'd be the end of it. And then, you know, right before the book was published, it just started to kind of uh, build up this this crazy head of steam. It was in. Um, Time Magazine when that existed and USA Today and the first week it was launched, we were on the Today Show. And, and so we're just like, what wormhole did we just go through? Wow. Uh, and so the book did kind of unexpectedly well, and it opened up a lot of opportunities, including the opportunity for me to quit my job and become a full-time writer, which was, I mean, it was always a fantasy, but, but honestly, in the absence of this wormhole, I, I probably never would have pursued it. So, so I'm grateful for for whatever uh wormhole that was that opened up for me.
0: Now you you talked about that uh, you kept your job for some period of time. How long did you do that? Because you you talk about that and I've I've read all your books and all the, they my apologies, they, they start to run together a little bit. So I'm not <laughs> be sure exactly which was in which point. But you talk about working on something in, in a parallel track, you know, before you make a decision to move on, kind of dipping your toe in it. So how long were you dipping your toe in? in doing the writing thing before you decided that's what you're going to pursue.
1: Oh, I mean, uh, as soon as I thought I could make a living doing writing, there was zero toe dipping. I mean, it was, it was just like, um, I mean, if for me, it was like, get whatever your favorite hobby is. Imagine if someone said like, you can make more money doing that hobby than you are at your current job. I mean, how long would it take you to, to, to ponder that decision? It was, mm-hmm. it was instantaneous, Um, but again, you know, it was, it was the product of more of a stroke of luck and fortune rather than kind of diligent career planning. Um, but, but to zoom out from my own experience, I mean, I think, um, that in our, our book chip and and my, that's our, not the Royal. We, uh, Mm -hmm. we wrote a book called decisive about making decisions. And I think we do a terrible, terrible disservice to young people who are trying to plot their careers, um. I mean, it, there are just some, some basic blocking and tackling elements that are totally missing from most people's upbringing. I do think it's getting better, but slowly. Uh, and one of the things we talk about in Decisive, uh, as an example of a decision-making strategy that I think has particular relevance for, for job searches, is, is the need to experiment rather than guess. So in other words, a lot of times in our life, and this was certainly true for me, when we're thinking about a certain choice, we kind of imagine ourselves having made it. So when I was young, it was, uh, I kind of imagined myself as a lawyer. Um, you know, people had always told me I, I would make a good lawyer, I think, because I like to write and speak. And, you know, I would always like have meaningless debates about things, you know, and so they're like, well, you're a lawyer. And so I was like, right. I kind of imagined myself in that role. Um And, and so that was like, my decision-making process is thinking like, would I be a good lawyer? How would I well, I'm kind of like Matlock, you know, but, but I think I, you know, with a little bit of Perry Mason thrown there, whatever. And, and I think always when you're making a decision, if you have a chance to actually test that decision, rather than just uh, cogitate about it, that's superior. So in other words, if I had spent even one day, maybe even an hour, in a corporate law office which is likely where you're headed because everybody goes to law school thinking they're going to be a civil rights attorney and they come out and they go straight to the corporate law office because right. you got 200 grand in debt what else are you going to do i mean that yeah. the aclu doesn't pay you that much money so if i had spent even one hour in a corporate law office it would have been like no okay that got it mm-hmm. that's not for me that's not mm-hmm. that's not what i wanted that's not matlock you know mm-hmm. um but we don't we don't create a mechanism by which this is easy for students you know, I mean, you can, you can get through four years of accounting, you can be an accounting major in college. And in fact, I talked to someone when I was researching decisive who was in in that, in that role, they, they were literally about to graduate with an accounting degree, their fourth year, they took a kind of organized field trip to an accounting firm. And this student told me, like, as soon as I walked in, I just had this, this deep sense of, of regret and dread, like, oh, my God, what have I done? Like, this is this is not what I was imagining, and this is not what I want. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's like malpractice, not by the student, but by the system. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that should be the first year of any major should be a taste of where you're headed. Right. Yep. Yep. So anyway, I, I, enough rambling about that. But I think the larger principle is any time in life, we can avoid predicting whether something's going to be a good choice for us and instead try it out, sample mm-hmm. it that's a much superior pathway.
0: Yeah, completely agree. I mean, there's so much value. I mean, if you're in school and internships, I mean, I I remember um, similarly, I guess, also thinking about law school. And it was really, I mean, my dad's a doctor and he just doesn't like, you know, how powerful lawyers are. And he's, even though he's thankfully hasn't been sued. He's always afraid of being sued. And he's like, if I have a son who can defend me, wouldn't that be great? So I always had that sort of (laughs) in the back of my mind. And then, one day at UT, I was I was just studying in the the law library, and I was like, I like this library. I can imagine being a lawyer. I mean, that was really my mentality, and that's as far as it went. And I called my dad, and I said, I'm going to be a lawyer. It was a mix of him, him really encouraging it, and then just liking the law library, and then I took the LSAT and was really going down that path myself until I sort of snapped out of it and realized, wait, what is being a lawyer? So it's just it's just strange how your your mind were sort of developed these paths and they really in retrospect don't make much sense
1: I mean, I was uh, I was a month away from entering law school that's how I mean it was it was a true near miss mm-hmm. you know and it took um, I mean this is a whole other story but it took somebody basically making me an offer I couldn't refuse uh, as an entrepreneur to keep me out of law school mm-hmm. and I look back and I just it's kind of like a um, like a near car accident or something mm-hmm. in my mind. I mean, look, I, I'm not knocking law. I know plenty of people love the law, but it, for me, it would have been a disaster.
0: Yeah, yeah. And
1: I, and I kind of look back in horror at how close I came to a catastrophic, dis- <laughs> like we, we yeah. should have a system that it, it it might've been hard to separate an A choice from a B choice for me. I mean, that takes nuance. It takes experience, but it shouldn't have been hard to eliminate an F choice. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think that's, that's where our system, I think uh, is poorly architected and it would be so simple to fix. Like when my wife went back to a physical therapy school and it's a three year program. Mm-hmm. Um, what they do is, not across the board, but many schools require you to put in a hundred observational hours. I mean, that's no joke. Mm -hmm. I mean, do the math on that. I mean, that's a commitment to apply. Mm. I mean, before you can get into P school, PT school, you have to have certification that you spend a hundred hours, like observing what it's like to be a PT and that, I mean, of all the enlightened policies, like that's like altruism.
0: Yeah, You know what I mean? That
1: is a policy that's so good. It has Number one, saved a lot of people from going into PT school and getting into debt that had no business applying. And they quickly realized at hour 38, it wasn't for them. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of other people went to PT school with more confidence in the choice they were making, knowing, by golly, this is exactly for me. And that was my wife. I mean, it it just Mm -hmm. convinced her all the more that it was for her. And it just makes you wonder, like, that is such an obvious thing. And yet it's nowhere near universal.
0: Yeah. Uncommon. And you also talk, I mean, your book about purpose versus passion, and that comes up a lot. You know, it can come up with folks who are just entering the workforce and then maybe people who are 10, 15 years in or even longer and think to themselves, I'm not really passionate about what I do. Should I be? I'm jealous of this person who is or seems to be. Should I follow my passion? And the The, uh, the research is interesting. Talk about that for a second.
1: Yeah, so this is um, this is Morton Hansen's research. He wrote a great book called uh, "Great at Work," and one of the studies he includes in that is a study of the the, the comparative importance of purpose and passion. So, so, what he did was he went to employees first, and he had them self-assess. You know, how how passionate do you feel? How how much purpose do you feel? And and to be clear, I, those terms are often conflated in a weird way. So I want to just untangle them. Purpose is about a higher sense of meaning to your work—it's like you're you're contributing to something bigger um, versus passion is just more about the excitement. So excitement or passion is more personal. It's like how do you feel about your work versus purpose is like do you feel like you're you're contributing to something larger? And so he had people self-assess on those traits, and then he went to their managers. And he had the managers basically give them a percentile rank in terms of their their value, their performance. So, you know, so a 90th percentile employee would be better than, you know, 90 out of 100. And, and so what, what Hanson did was so brilliant was he kind of put those things together to see, like, um, for instance, if you were a, an employee that rated yourself high passion and high purpose it was no great surprise that they were very highly ranked by managers. Right. Uh, and conversely, when people were low passion and low purpose, they were very uh, poorly ranked by managers. No great surprise there either. But here's where the surprise comes in. He then compared people who only had one of the two. So uh, those of you listening, just take a guess. For, for managers, do you think that they would tend to rate employees more highly if they were high passion, low purpose, or high purpose, low passion. Just take a quick guess. When, when I have asked uh, audiences live that question, at least two thirds of the hands going up, they think that the better rated employees will be high passion versus high purpose. And it's exactly backwards. It's high purpose and it's not even close. I mean, it, I don't recall the exact numbers, but I'm talking about like 30 or 40 percentage points difference. It's not It's not a a small incremental difference. And so it's interesting to kind of think through why that might be the case. And I think the way I would explain it is something like this. Um, If you imagine a high passion, low purpose employee, that might be someone like, imagine a recent college graduate who's a graphic designer. They get their first job and they get to play with like Photoshop and Premiere and InDesign and all day. And so it's kind of fun, but they work at a, at a tire shop. And so it's like they, they could give a damn about tires, you know, or the industry, but it's just, it's cool to work with these tools. That's high passion, low purpose versus imagine a, a 25 year nurse who uh, doesn't bound out of bed every day to get to work, you know, might be pretty, pretty burned out but just feels an intense uh, sense of, of obligation uh, for, for the patients that she serves and feels like she's really doing something important. She sees the product of her labor every day. You know, that's more of a high purpose, low passion employee. And so I think mm-hmm. those two examples kind of give us some intuition of why purpose might actually be a more lasting motivator than passion yeah so I don't know I do, what what yeah. what's your take on all that? I mean, you see this from a lot of different perspectives.
0: yeah, I think it's uh, really doing people a disservice by they seem they should be passionate about what they're doing cuz sometimes what I found is passion comes from also being an expert. And so the longer mm-hmm. you do something, I mean I didn't I didn't grow up wanting to be in the recruiting industry. I, and my background's in marketing and neither one of those things, you know, when I was a kid I wanted to be a baseball player. I mean that's what I was passionate about.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But over yeah.
0: time when I realized, okay, you know what I I'm, I'm, I'm kind of good at this. I started to get passionate about it and the, and the better you get, the more passionate and it's just this this cycle. You know, and, and I, that's what I found when I've looked at people who are passionate. It's not that they entered with the passion, but they developed the passion over time by being really good at something.
1: So. I couldn't agree more, man. And I, I, I don't know where this 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 idea of follow your passion, find your passion came. I mean, it's just it's kind of silly, really, when you think about it. Like my niece uh, just started college and as a teenager, like her thing was animals. She loved animals. She volunteered at this, uh, this kind of shelter for animals. And so, you know, adults, you know, being the kind of um, we want to be so helpful to, to Mm -hmm. kids. And and so what would people say? Well, you should be a veterinarian, right? Because Mm -hmm. animals, passion, job. I mean, that's the kind of simplistic stuff that we tell people, but, but she was wise enough even at age 17 to be like, no, I just, Really like animals, but that doesn't mean I want to be a daggone veterinarian, right? Yeah. Um, And I think we do that all the time. It's like we, somebody likes music and we want to teach them about music production, or somebody likes to paint and we, uh, well, you should go into, uh, you know, fashion design or something. Uh, Be more patient with people because, Mm -hmm. like you say, I think if you talk to nine out of 10 mid career professionals, None of them are going to say, like, by golly, like when I was 17, my passion was HR recruiting. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or, 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 you know, my, when I was 17, my passion was writing psychology inflected business books, you know, mm-hmm. for people, you know. Um, <laughs> right. It develops and, over and, time. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, um, I, I, I love what I do, but, but passion seems like a weird word for it. You know what I mean? Like there, there are not many days when I feel like I am just burning with passion to go and do what I do. Like right. I am grateful for my job. I love what I do. I'm proud of it. Passion is probably not on my top 10 list of ways I would describe it. You know what I mean? Right. It's yeah. just like, I, f- I feel like we're just creating this, um, this lofty aspiration and, and implying to young people that like, it's possible to just kind of yeah. be amped all the time. Of- <laughs> yeah about what you do
0: yeah and i think it's doing them a disservice but i i see just as much you know, from mid-career folks who just think that other people are all happier in what they're doing and are all passionate about what they're doing and they're the only one who's not and i just think it's much more normal than they realize that you can be doing something and really enjoying it, it doesn't have to be your number one passion
1: um it, just one one tangent yeah. on that i i I have this like appointment at Duke university and as part of it, every year I speak to the incoming MBAs. And of course, if there's one defining trait of an MBA is that they have an insatiable appetite for career stuff. I mean, that is like, it's career 24, seven, you know? And, and one of the things that that I've learned to say to them that I think is actually helpful is, is forget about passion and think about flow. Mm-hmm. And, and your, your listeners probably have read about the flow state, but, you know, the flow state is this idea that th- there are certain things that we do that just are absorbing to us. You know, mm-hmm. one of the defining characteristics of being in a flow state is that time disappears. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's like you're, you're working on some project and it's absorbed you to the extent that you look at the clock and you're like, oh gosh, two hours have gone by. Like, where did, where did the time go? that's flow. Flow doesn't feel euphoric. Mm-hmm. It doesn't it doesn't feel great. It feels absorbing. Mm. But but that's what you're looking for in a job because that means you're somewhere where you're supposed to be. And I think it's easier to pattern match for flow than it is for euphoria or passion. And so one of the things I have the MBAs do is, you know, forget about forget about money and rankings and prestige for a second. Just introspect. I mean, you've had enough work experience by that point in your life to think about when was the last time you really felt like the world just kind of disappeared and and you were in your bubble? Mm -hmm. And for me, that's writing. I mean, that's why it's so special to me is the world disappears when I'm in that space. But for some people it's like crunching data. I mean, they can spend four hours in a spreadsheet and it's just like, you know, the the lights start to flash. And for other people, it's some project management, but, but flow uh, is, is to me a more, Kind of pragmatic aspiration, maybe. Yeah,
0: and then you call your wife, or she calls you, and says you you're about an hour and a half late for dinner. Where have you been? And then you have to explain the concept of flow. Like I've exactly, been there. I've I've been. Yeah. There. you know why? And are you, I I've discovered right
1: that that is not a credible defense.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Well, let's talk about the power of
0: moments and how they relate to the. Job world and the you know in, in, starting new folks in their careers and onboarding and you know some missed opportunities that I know that you've done research into so you know for example, you know you're bringing somebody on board you know for the first time into your company it's a, an important moment for that person, but it's a missed opportunity by so many companies and you know i i've I don't know whether it was your book or where i where i you know, heard about this idea originally. And we, we, you know, we really, we really went for it. Um, you know, at our company, we, we took, we took these blown up uh, deals that you would see at a NBA game. You bang them together. I don't even know what they're called. Those sticks you bang together when somebody would walk in to office for the first time on their first day. And we went a little overboard, but that's the, those are the kind of things that we tried to do, but um, I love it. Some, some worked well. And some people just kind of looked at me and Hey, what are we doing here? But Talk a little bit about that, about the power of moments in in the corporate world and how you can create some of those around important areas.
1: Yeah, this this relates to an important theme of the book. So let let me just say a a couple of paragraphs about um, what the book's message is and why the first day is so important. Mm -hmm. So the case we make in the book is that when you think about shaping experience for people, whether you're talking about employees or, or customers or patients or students, you know, our, our, our kind of entry point is that, well, if you want a world-class experience, every detail has to be impeccable, right? It's got to be end-to-end professionalism, perfection. And in fact, that's, that's rarely the case because what we've learned from psychologist research on experiences is that when people look back on their experiences, most of what they went through dissolves or fades and, and what we're left with are just certain snippets, certain scenes, certain moments. And I mean, that's easy enough to test for yourself. Just think about a vacation you took a year or two or three ago, and you can't just load up a video and kind of watch it end to end, right? It's, it's certain, certain specific memories that endure. So that's part one of the story. And then part two is psychologists have found that there is a logic to which moments we disproportionately recall. And and to to make a long story short, the the two types that we disproportionately recall are peaks, which are the most positive moments in a positive experience, or the most negative moments in a negative experience, and the transition points. So there was a study done of people's memories of college, and they found that forty percent of people's memories came from the month of September, um, which is which is probabilistically improbable, right? You would expect, uh, you know. T- Uh, 8% and change to come from September, but instead it's 40%. The reason why is a transition point. You know, that's the moment when things really changed in your life as a new semester, maybe a new roommate, maybe a new place to live and that imprinted memories. So, so that is exactly why the first day of work is critical. It's, it's worth a hundred times what day 138 is like. And yet you know, when you actually look at the real world and the way the first day is treated, most places treat it like a kind of uh, bureaucratic nuisance, you know, it's about, well, somebody get Heath's intranet password and we gotta, you know, we gotta find him a badge in the supply closet and Mm -hmm. let's get him some binder clips and he'll be good to go. You know, it's just like this, this set of administrative tasks. Uh, but that's just so wrongheaded. I mean, it's, remember the jitters we all had the first day of school, uh, I mean, especially a new school, maybe in a new city you hadn't been before, and just that the anxiety, like, is anybody going to like me? Am I going to fit in this place? Am I going to know where I'm going? You're kind of self-monitoring the whole time. I mean, that's what a first day of work feels like for people. Um, so anyway, in the book, we're making this case, but we also present a case study of somebody who did the opposite, who treated that with the significance it deserves. Um, it's a story from John Deere and a woman named Lonnie Lawrence Fry who led the work. And so they created this whole first day experience where even before you start, you start getting emails from one of your colleagues and they're just describing what what work is like and where people eat lunch and what people wear and where you should park on the first day. So you get there the first day and you walk up to the front door your your friend from email is standing there at the front door. They sent a picture and so you recognize him. They're there to greet you. They have a cup of coffee waiting for you. You walk in the lobby and on the flat screen monitors in the lobby, it's your name. It's like, welcome Dan Heath. And you're like, Mm -hmm. well, that's pretty cool. And then over the day, over and over, this stuff starts happening. Like you get a video from the CEO of John Deere talking about his career and welcoming you. And they take you out to lunch and your boss comes by to to set up a coffee date. And then your boss's boss comes by to set up a coffee date. And they give you a, a stainless steel replica of the self polishing plow that, that, uh, the, that John Deere, the inventor, made. And you walk out that first day just saying, you know, two things. One, the work we're doing here is important. Like I understand how I fit into something that's big, that's back to purpose. And the second thing is, I, I fit here. They want me. You know, I, I feel like I belong. And I feel like um there there's a lot of lessons in the power of moments about experience but but I think one of the one of the low the 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 kind of pieces of lowest hanging fruit in the corporate world, if you want a better employee experience, why not start with the first day?
0: Mm-hmm. why do you think more companies don't do that? Is it they've never thought about it? Is it, hey, you know what? I never got that. Why am I doing this for this new person? I mean what are some of the reasons that you've heard or that you, you have a, have a, uh, theory on?
1: Yeah, I think, I think it's a couple of things. One is, um, I think once you, once you get into a corporate system, it's like new employees are instrumental to some goal, you know, like you, you're in, you're in a hiring spree because you've got to ramp up sales or because you have a, Uh, production backlog or whatever. And so employees are kind of widgets in your mental model. You just want to get them to work as quickly as possible. Uh, The other thing that I think I discovered personally is it's really hard organizationally to do a good job at this because it's no one's job to Mm -hmm. do this. Mm -hmm. So I, before the book came out, I sent a draft of the book around to a bunch of people and it had the John Deere story in it. And I heard from this uh, chro of a really big company, and she was she was psyched about it. She was like, "I want to do that here." Mm-hmm. And so I thought, "Hey, this is cool. Maybe I'll I'll help them gin up their own first day experience, and I'll have another good story to tell in the book." And so I got involved in some of the conference calls and really observed how the sausage was made. And it was this thing where when we started, you know, we had these grandiose fantasies of like, well, we could do this. And uh, wouldn't it be amazing if we, we could have bagpipes playing? And that wasn't a <laughs> right. real thing, but just just <laughs> a, as a flavor for our aspirations. Right. And then like by call four, it was like, well, you know, and initially we had this idea to have like, Uh, an omelet station or a waffle station like they have in fancy hotels because they had they had cohorts of people starting on the same first day that was one of their issues is they didn't just have one person they had like 20 people so we were thinking well how do we make something special for 20 people and well at least we can feed them like a proper breakfast and make it and and by the fourth call it was like well i don't know if the the waffle station thing's really going to work out but but there's some great croissants at costco you know that are (laughs) Yeah, and and uh, so, but by the end, I am not kidding when I say one of their elements of their their uh, first day experience was to give employees a like a fifteen dollar voucher mm. to the employee cafeteria. Yeah, and yeah. I was just shaking my head and disgust and and shame that yeah. uh, that I was part of this, you know. But <laughs> but it helped it helped me empathize because they all had really good intentions. I mean, they wanted to make this work. The right. the boss was telling them we need to do a better job at this. And it was just hard. Yeah. Um, it's, I, it's I, hard. It's hard to make something great when it's not, you know, part of your job requirements. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think anyone who's ever been in a meeting can, visualize exactly how that went down, right? <laughs> I mean, you come in and then you realize, okay, well, anything you're trying to get done that's ambitious is going to be difficult. And so it's just easier to kind of, everybody just kind of gives in a little bit until you're just ideas diluted. Um Yeah. So I mean, one I knew- of the, one
1: of our uh, little um, coffee cup lines in the book is beware the soul sucking force of reasonableness. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember that because yeah. the, um I mean, really the book is fundamentally about if you build peak moments for people, they'll forgive a lot of nuisances and mediocrities, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to have end-to-end perfection, mm-hmm. right? But if the first day is right, it buys you a lot of grace. Yeah. Like Think think about Disney World, for instance. I think this is, this is always a helpful example because we've all been through this. And even if you haven't been to Disney, you've been to some theme park like the actual moment to moment lived experience of being at Disney world is not that great. No. It's just not, I mean, yeah. I defy you to argue with me about that. Like there's, there's lines everywhere, you know, nine days out of 10, it's like 98 degrees and just boiling hot. Even in December, it's like 98. Everything's expensive. There are crowds. People are sweating. Your kids are acting like animals. Like, yeah. So on a moment-to-moment basis, you would have been a lot happier just sitting on your couch and binge-watching Netflix or something, Um, but the reason we cherish Disney World is because it delivers Peaks. Mm-hmm. You know, you go on a roller coaster ride and it blows your mind or your kids get to meet a princess and, and they're just smiling like you've never seen them smile before. You know, one of the characters comes up and, and signs a notebook for them. I mean, there are moments that you cannot replicate on your couch at home. There are peaks. And because there are peaks, we are willing to forgive a lot of that other mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and so that is the mental model you need when you think about employee engagement, when you think about recruiting employees. It's not that everything has to be perfect. It's that you got to deliver some moments that are good enough that it buys you some grace because not everything will be perfect.
0: Yeah. I mean, going, going through that book, I actually turned to my wife and said, you know, we're going to have a day. And I want, I want our kids to remember this. We're going to have a day where they're going to plan the entire day. They're gonna play, and they're gonna remember that for the rest of their lives. And it was from this book. And my wife said, "Okay, what day?" And I said, um, "You know, how about this Sunday?" She's like, "Okay, well, they got yoga in the morning, so they're gonna be done at ten thirty. Um, don't remember, Elia's got a play date at one. And then by the time we we're done, we had about a thirty-minute window. You know, so I mean, <laughs> that, I mean that's just real life. you are like, "Oh, okay. Well, I guess it's not gonna work." The perfect half day. hour. You know? Yeah. Yeah, just plan whatever you want in this 90 second span. So that's kind of you know, taking away. But yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, I had a, a dad come up to me. I was speaking about the book at a conference one time and he came up and he said exactly what you said. He said, I was I'm gonna let my kids or I did uh, have my kids plan their perfect day. And and I'm I'm kind of embarrassed. I, I wish I would have thought of that before we published the book because uh, I mean it's just such a powerful idea as a parent. And I don't know why it's not natural to just have that occur to you, but but he said. I told them they could plan their perfect day. And as long as it wasn't, you know, science fiction, like, well, we're going to have a picnic on the moon or whatever. Like we would make it happen. Yeah. But he made them actually draw up the plans. Like he made them put some effort into it. And so they both, I think they were like five and seven. Mm-hmm. And they both drew up just these incredible detailed agendas of the day. And and it completely defied what you would expect, right? Mm. You would expect your kids to just, you know, well, it's bounce house in the morning and then it's riding ponies and then it's (laughs) eight ice cream cones. It was nothing like that. It was nothing like that. It was like, we're going to take the family dog for a walk and then we're going to go to the park and then we're going to go to Chipotle for lunch. And then I remember the boy wanted to play board games in the afternoon. And the boys like like the peak moment in his peak day happened after dinner. I, I vividly remember the way he drew this. It just said no showers. Mm. And there and there was like a drawing of the shower head with a with a circle and a <laughs> slash through it. Yeah. And that and I was just thinking, like, gosh, this is just gold, you know. Yeah. Why don't we ask the people whose experiences we're shaping what matters to them? It might surprise
0: yeah. us. Yeah. You know, but you're exactly right. That's exactly what I'd visualize. In fact. The bounce house was one of the reasons, combined with the concept that I was thinking about them planning their day, because we go to the bounce house so often that it's no longer special, and anything <laughs> could be boring if you do it a lot, right? So, right, you know, you talk about the concept of, I mean, you phrase it differently in different books, but the concept of creating a tripwire or maybe breaking a script or, you know, things being redundant and, and breaking them up, and it just seems like the idea of a pattern interruption is so important. To either making ideas stick or creating a powerful moment, um, is that something that you've that you've noticed throughout your work?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I think what um, I mean on the experience side, we talk about a concept called breaking the script, which just says what makes things more memorable is is when they violate our expectations, and it can work either way. It can be a negative negative memory or a positive memory. Um, but we we talk about how. Um, there's, there's a certain tension between comfort and memorability, Mm -hmm. like, and especially as adults, I think we often organize ourselves for comfort. Mm -hmm. You know, things just get more and more in the groove. Um, You know, we, we kind of systematically tackle the things that cause us anxiety and grief in life. And so we're, we're like smoothing, smoothing, smoothing. Mm -hmm. But then there's this research that says, if you ask people about, their lifespan and their most memorable moments in their life, they all cluster Mm -hmm. in a period from about age roughly 15 to 30. And and it's called uh, the reminiscence bump. Mm -hmm. And and researchers have dug into why. And and I think everybody listening to this is nodding their heads. Like, yeah, there's a lot of like whopper memories from that time in your life. And you ask why. The reason is there's so many firsts. In that time period, you know, it's, it's your first uh, girlfriend or boyfriend. It's your first job. It's your first kiss. It's your first time away from your parents. It's the first time you like earning your own money, spending your own money. It's your first terrible mistake, you know, on and on and on. And then by the time you hit 50, it's like those moments just don't come mm-hmm. with the same frequency. And I think that's mostly good news to be clear. I mm-hmm. mean, you could sure as hell make your life more memorable by, you know, bailing on your family and moving to New Zealand and becoming like a sheep farmer or something. I and mean, that right. would create a lot of memories, but it would be just deeply unwise and stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the flavor of it is if we want to help people create memories, then, then we have to remember that sense of, of expectation breaking. Um, and that's why the John Deere first day experience, I think, is so powerful Cause we've been conditioned to think that when we arrive, it's going to be all about the badge and the internet and the binder clips. And then to be, uh, to experience something where you're treated as a human being, you're celebrated, you're, you're welcomed. Um, that's powerful.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, that's uh, you know, I think about this a lot just in the meetings that we run because my thinking has always been to keep it very structured and to have a format because it In my mind, that creates less anxiety. You know, people know what to expect. They know what's expected of them. They run pretty much the same way. But I'd say probably after ten or fifteen of them, you're probably tuned out. You know what's going to happen. They're not exciting. They all run together. And so, introducing this concept, maybe every ten or fifteen meetings, hey, let's break it up. Now we're going to do this, or maybe someone else runs the meeting or whatever. I think that's, you know, that'd be that'd be really helpful, kind of balancing the lack of anxiety with some excitement. Yeah.
1: yeah, I think that's right. And it's, um, and it's not just, I mean, I think the fruits of this are not just that you're, you're breaking it up or kind of uh, uh, livening up the meetings. It's also about growth, mm-hmm. you know, it's like getting out of a rut. Like mm-hmm. we give an example in the book of um, this pastor at a church in, um, in Texas near the border with Mexico and um he said that they had just gotten into a rut of you know meetings all the meetings are the same they look at the budget and they kind of bemoan their lack of funds and deal with the biggest emergencies and and so he um he decided to break the script and so he he when board members arrived he paired them up and he had them just walk the campus of this church and he he asked them to to um to kind of don the eyes of of a first-time visitor You know, someone just approaching the church for the first time, you know, through those eyes, walk the campus and see what observations you have. And he said it was just amazing what they came back with. Like some of them um, said, well, you know, we we have um, two services, one in English and one in Spanish to try to serve our guests. But all the signage is in English. And so that's a weird message to to our first time guests who are Spanish speakers mm. and, and others of them, they happened to run across an AA meeting in the church hall. And they said, you know, we hadn't realized how, how useful the church can be just as a meeting place for the community. You know, we're wondering like, are there other ways we could reach out to different groups and, and allow them into the building? Uh, some of them just said, we'd kind of forgotten how beautiful this church was. You know, we'd, we'd just gotten used to not seeing it. And so, so I think you're, you're, uh your instinct to freshen things up uh and even your quant i think your quantity estimate is actually pretty good like every Mm. 10 or 15 like you you can't break the script every time right or you just create a a a a breaking script script um (laughs) so but but you know every so often it really helps just to kind of um shake things up and, and come from a different perspective
0: yeah and, and just the the church example reminds me of you know applying to a job at your own company. You know how many when was the last time a company leader or someone in HR tried to apply to a job at their company and understood w- what an applicant was going through that they have to upload their resume and then copy and paste from it and then fill out five forms and then get something back and they may not hear that would frustrate them right and and yeah. I've, I've spoken to some audience of HR folks, you know, I haven't asked them to raise their hand. I don't want to embarrass them, but how many go, you know, when was the last time you went through your own application process? And I, and I, my guess is just very few. And it's been a long time since they've done that.
1: Right. Right. That's a great point. And and what a, what a great way to kind of break your own script as an executive is to, to walk in the shoes of the people that you serve. Mm -hmm. I, I did some training for a bank one time and they, um, they had their employees go to one of the bank branches and try to open a checking account, mm. um, only to discover it was it was far more cumbersome than than they ever imagined. So I, I think yep. those kind of empathy exercises can be really really powerful.
0: We only have a few more minutes, and there was there was a, a little bit on mentorship and being a powerful mentor in your book that I think is. Really applicable to this audience because we get asked that question a lot. You know, whether it's people who want to be a mentor or they want to find a mentor, I just thought it was really interesting um, how you talked about you know, the different aspects of a good men- of a good mentor and how to be how to be one, um, setting high standards and having assurance. Can you kind of talk about that and then what great mentors do, kind of taking it a step further?
1: Yeah, I th- I think the 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 core realization. About mentors is is to just think about your own in your life and and there's one trait that that virtually every mentor shares, and that is they ask us to stretch. Uh, and by stretch, I mean, go beyond our present capabilities in a way that exposes us to risk. You know no, nobody ever looks back on their high school coach and says, you know, coach Watkins, he was a great man he let us do whatever we wanted. We could goof <laughs> off all the practice. He didn't care whether we showed up or not. He was awesome. You mm-hmm. know, and I mean, the reason we value mentors is because they push us beyond what we thought we were capable of.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But that's difficult to do in practice because um, we have a strong instinct to protect the people we care about. I mean, anybody mm-hmm. who's a parent listening to this knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's like, uh, do, do you do you let your child do the dangerous thing on the playground and risk an injury or do, or do you shelter them from that? And how, I mean, that's the kind of tension of, of mentoring someone is you want them to grow, but you want them to grow really safely and, and well nurtured and, right. and that creates uh, a difficulty. So So one of the points we're making in the book is just, I think a lot of times we we set that dividing line, uh, too conservatively, mm. and so we were we were challenging people. If you're a mentor, encourage the people th- that you mentor to stretch, and let them know you're going to be there to help if if they need it. You know, mm-hmm. because if if they don't have an authentic risk of failing, then it's not a stretch. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the book is not full of church examples, but another church example comes to <laughs> mind where. Um, <laughs> There was a minister who allowed his um his pastoral intern to teach like the Easter Sunday lesson, which is which is sort of like the Super Bowl right if, mm-hmm. if you're in the clergy, that's when everybody shows up to church who hasn't been there in a year and and so that was a big ask mm-hmm. and 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 he said, you know I think uh in the absence of that stretch, uh, you know it might have taken a lot longer for him to." The, the intern to kind of build his self confidence, um, and and be ready for bigger things. So so that's the spirit of it is yeah. um, challenging people to stretch and also being ready to support them if and when they need it.
0: Yeah, I, I took notes on that chapter. It's a uh, it's a difficult thing. It's a difficult thing um, giving constructive criticism and showing that you care. I mean, there's a way to to do it that people receive it, and uh, you give some great examples in the book. Um, before we run, you've got a new course out, uh, The Power of Moments, and it's with a group called Social Talent. Tell us a little bit about that, where we could find it. Um, yeah, before we go.
1: Yeah, actually, one of the reasons why I was excited about this conversation is I think basically everybody listening to this might be interested in this thing. That So there's a, a platform called Social Talent um, that is a training platform for people in the hiring, onboarding um, employee retainment business. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is basically like a, a training platform for HR folks. And so I made a deal with them to do a bunch of many courses on the material in the Power Moments, which we talked a lot about. There, there are courses on employee engagement, their are uh, courses on onboarding and, um, and hiring and mentorship that we just talked about, courses on events and training. It's basically like um, everything that relates to employee engagement, retention, cultivation, development. So if any of that stuff is interesting to you, go check out the platform, Social Talent. Uh, and, and the course just launched uh, maybe four weeks ago or so.
0: Perfect. Perfect. Um, who, who do you like reading before we let you go? Who are some of your favorite authors?
1: You know, I, I probably read more fiction than nonfiction, but my my nonfiction favorites are I anything by Malcolm Gladwell. I'm just a, mm-hmm. a huge, huge fanboy. Uh, anything by Michael Lewis. Mm-hmm. Um love, love those too. Yeah, those I mean, those are just classics. And I'm looking at my uh bookshelf to see if I've read anything recently that I would really uh endorse. Um there's there's a really good book actually called, um, gosh, I always forget the name. It's like Leader Lab or, or um, um, let me see if I can Google it real quick so I get it right. And it hasn't gotten a lot of attention. Hmm. And so I particularly want to give a shout out to this. I thought it was just super, super good, full of like great practical research. Yes, the Leader Lab is exactly what it's called. Hmm. Um so, uh, so check that one out for, for really practical guidance on managing, giving feedback and so forth.
0: Well, check that out. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I really appreciate you being on. It's been fun to reconnect and, uh, I could, you know, I could chat with you for a lot longer and I mean, you've written five books. So I could really, you know, this could be a, a full day, but just catching up has been, has been, fantastic. we'll do the
1: 24 hour version. We'll just, we'll, we'll drink like eight cups of coffee and just go. Seriously, lot, between us, yeah. we got
0: we got five daughters. So there's a lot of a lot of
1: <laughs> I know there's a lot of ground to cover.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, I appreciate it. It's been awesome catching up, Dan. And yeah, folks go to uh, social talent to check out that course, the power of moments. And if you've missed any past episodes here, go to my one life All right. Well, thanks, everybody. And thanks, Dan. Really appreciate it.
1: Hey, thanks a million, Keith.
0: All right.